you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. This is Amanda Hirsch from the Not Skinny But Not Fat podcast. You might know me from Not Skinny But Not Fat on Instagram, where I spend my time talking about reality TV, celebrities, everything happening, and pop culture every Tuesday, okay? I also talk to some of our favorite celebs and reality TV stars. We talk about what's going on. Tune in every Tuesday and just feel like you're talking with your best friends in your living room. Welcome back to another episode of the Career Contessa podcast, your shortcut to being more fulfilled, healthy, and successful at work. I'm your host, Lauren McGoodwin, and today we're talking about emotions, specifically anxiety. Many of us have been taught that anxiety is bad and that we should learn to prevent it. But what if you could learn how to harness the power of anxiety to create a better future? That's what we'll talk about today with Dr. Tracy Dennis Tawari, an anxiety researcher and author of the book, Future Tense. Plus, Dr. Tracy is sharing an actionable tip to help you filter when to say yes to things this year that I can't recommend enough. I love it. I've been using it myself and you guys are going to also love this. And now this is the Career Contessa podcast. We taught people that anxiety is dangerous and damaging and that the solution to its pain is to eradicate it like we do any disease, prevent it, avoid it, and stamp it out at all costs. Yet cutting edge therapies, hundreds of self-help books, and a variety of medications have failed to keep debilitating anxiety at bay. A third of us will struggle with anxiety disorders in our lifetime and rates in children and adults continue to skyrocket. That's because the anxiety as disease story is false and it's harming us. Enter Dr. Tracy Dennis Tawari, who has a radical reinterpretation of anxiety that she wrote about in her book called Future Tense, and that she's going to be sharing with us today. Hi, Dr. Tracy. Welcome to the show. Hi, Lauren. So great to be with you. All right, Dr. Tracy, can we start with an understanding of why you say that anxiety is linked to hope and actually good for us? Because I imagine that that's the radical reinterpretation that you're talking about, which is that anxiety (laughs) is actually not a bad thing. (laughs) That's pretty much it. And it's very hard for us to wrap our head around that concept because, because, and this is really one of the main motivators I had for writing the book. We have come to almost completely equate the emotion of anxiety with anxiety disorders. 
or with something that's dangerous and damaging. So, so now anytime we feel even a little anxious or we're starting to have even, you know, maybe, you know, occasional intense feelings of anxiety, we assume that this is a warning sign, that it's dangerous and that it's destructive. And so we actually have stopped realizing that anxiety as an emotion is actually something we've evolved to have, number one. And number two, that anxiety disorders are not diagnosed just when we have experiences of anxiety once in a while or even intense experiences of anxiety. Anxiety disorders are only diagnosed when the ways we're coping with that anxiety are getting in the way of a full life. Hmm. So, you know, this misunderstanding may just have, you know, just stayed a misunderstanding. But unfortunately, when it comes to anxiety, when we treat this emotion, which is a normal human emotion, as dangerous or destructive, what do we do? It's part of this disease story. Well, we try to prevent it. We avoid it. We might even try to eradicate it. And that happens to be a recipe for actually making anxiety worse. Anything we try to suppress usually comes back stronger. And this approach of fearing anxiety actually primes us to do these very unhelpful things. And actually, you could say even damaging things when it comes to coping with day-to-day anxiety in our lives. So we're, we're primed to avoid, we're primed to suppress, we're primed to deny. And these are huge opportunity costs in actually learning how to work with anxiety in our life, and even how to leverage this emotion that we've evolved to have in some helpful ways. And, and so, so this misunderstanding, I think, is I just want to start really with that important distinction. And then once we make that distinction, it becomes a little more possible to imagine how anxiety could maybe be a good thing, because it's an emotion that we evolved to have. Yeah, I... I feel like I I really understand what you mean about sometimes anxiety can be a good thing because I feel like when I'm in a really anxious state, I almost have this like heightened state of creativity and definitely a heightened state of productivity. Like if you want something done, get me a little anxious and like it's going to get done. (laughs) Exactly. And that's not a mistake, right? Because because we actually evolved. So let's take a step back and think about, okay, anxiety is an emotion, but it's not just a disorder. And so why would we have evolved to be anxious? And here's where the title of my book is a big clue to what science tells us about anxiety. So anxiety, it's not the same as fear. Anxiety is unique because it's apprehension about the uncertain future. It's this nervousness that it feels a lot like fear, right? So it's the, you know, the butterflies in our stomach, the racing heart. But while fear is about a present threat, like, uh, you know, like a snake about to bite you and, and it's certain and it's about to happen. And that's why, why fear is there for us. It gives us information about that threat and preparation to deal with it so that we can, in the case of fear, fight, take flight or flee the three F's. But anxiety is, is very different information and preparation. Anxiety is information that the future is uncertain, which it always is right by its nature. Yeah. But that this future actually holds something bad that could happen, but it also simultaneously holds positive possibilities. So that if I'm anxious about an upcoming talk or podcast interview, I'm anxious because I know that, oh, I could bomb this. This could go terribly. We, you know, it's, it's something bad could happen. But I actually, when I'm anxious, I'm, I'm also holding in mind hope that if I work, if I prepare, if I if I am at my best, I can also do very well in this upcoming challenge. Mm-hmm. And so the information is that the future is uncertain, but it's not time to despair. 
because we still hold hope. And the preparation is, as you say, anxiety primes us to focus, to persist, to be innovative, to prepare, to, you know, it primes us to move into this future, to avert disaster and do what it takes to make our dreams come true. So that's why the flip side of anxiety is not despair or anything. It's actually the flip side of anxiety is hope. It's those positive possibilities that because we have these big prefrontal cortexes, <laughs> you know, these, this, this human brain evolution that we're actually able to hold that possibility, that hope in mind at the same time as we know that something bad could happen. Yeah. So that's why when we struggle with anxiety, what we're actually also struggling with is hope for the future. Yeah, I almost think of that as like uh, Brene Brown in her new book, she talks about how hope is not an emotion. It's a way of thinking or a cognitive process. And I almost think I wonder if anxiety, you know, it got rebranded as this bad thing because it's a disorder and it's an emotion. But like it is sort of this cognitive process to your point. You don't you never know what's happening in the future, but it's how can you deal with that uncertainty it's like poor anxiety. It she just got rebranded badly. Problem. It's exactly yeah. what you say. I feel like I'm sometimes a publicist for anxiety, but the only reason I am is because when we think about it as information and preparation that helps us navigate uncertainty, all of a sudden we're primed to do helpful things when it comes to anxiety. We yeah. engage with it. So there's a vicious cycle of anxiety that when we avoid it really is driven, right? We we fear it, we flee from it. You know, we, we feel it's dangerous. These, these, all these, these avoidance and fear that we have of anxiety that primes the vicious cycle that starts to make anxiety worse over time. Yeah. But there's a virtuous cycle when we believe that there's something good in anxiety. Yeah. Well, I think it'd be helpful. Can you give us an example of what, what is helpful anxiety? Like what would that look like versus unhelpful anxiety? So I'll give you an example of something that actually is really unpleasant. And it may not at first blush seem like helpful anxiety, but, but anxiety by its design has to be unpleasant because it needs us to sit up and pay attention. So if it, if it just felt really like, la la, you know, we would, it really wouldn't be doing its job. So many people experience what I also experience pretty often, which is that you wake up maybe at three or 4 a.m., with worries. <laughs> That's, you know, it's these early. I'm nodding worries. my head. You guys can't see it, but I'm like, yes, I totally relate to that. Yes. Uh, keep going. <laughs> Everyone experiences it. It sucks. Like anxiety, it stinks. It doesn't feel good. Right. But you're there. And the other day this happened to me and I actually woke up re- just like really feeling yucky. I wasn't actually even sure what I was feeling anxious about. But I knew it felt bad. I knew there was something on my mind. So because I know that anxiety can be good for me, that it can be helpful, I took a breath. I actually even did a little breathing exercise that I like that that calms me down just for, you know, 60 seconds. And I just said, okay, anxiety, I'm going to be curious about you. I'm going to be open to the, the fact that you actually often can give me information. So I just listened for a minute. And there was this one worry that rose to the surface. And I was able to give words to it. And it was something about a work, an upcoming work deadline and and some kind of snafu that had happened with some data I was working on, actually, because I'm a scientist. And I was like, oh, this has been really a burden on me. I've been kind of shunting it aside. And so, you know, I listened and I realized, okay, I need to do something about this today because that's going to make everything easier later. And it's, you know, it's something I need to deal with. So by listening to that anxiety, I got information that allowed me to then 
prepare. So what I did is still in bed, by the way, <laughs> you know, I'm sitting there kind of stewing, but I made a plan. I made a plan of action for when I was actually supposed to wake up in a few hours for that day. And I said, okay, I'm going to take this step. I'm going to email this person and I'm going to get in front of this problem instead of behind it. And lo and behold, as I was listening to my, you know, all these feelings and, you know, my anxiety started to go down and I thought, oh, okay, that now I'm on the right track because anxiety, when we listen to it rise, it tells us what we care about. It tells us what's important in our life because we're only anxious when we care about something, right? We're not anxious about something that doesn't matter. And then I listened to it as it went down and it gave me this information. Okay. By making this action plan, by preparing, you're on the right track. And I was calmer. I actually felt really at peace. I had a plan and I was able to get a couple more hours of sleep. And when I woke up in the morning, I put my plan into action and it actually turned everything around for me at work because I'd been so avoidant of this thing that had really felt like too much for me, but I made like a small step action plan, two things I could do. And it really, it, it, I was able to pivot and really change things for the better at work. So this is an example of how When we listen to anxiety, I call it the three L's. We listen to anxiety. We figure out if we can, how to leverage it, how to use it for a productive action. But then the third L is that we also need to know how to let go. So if we can also, if we're always in the future tense, we'll never know when good enough is good enough or we, okay, an action plan is there. And we need to gain skills in sort of riding this wave of anxiety, learning to swim, learning to, you know, really learning to use it but then learning when to let go and come back to the present tense and to then give ourselves rest and recuperation as well. So it's this sort of skill that we can build with practice so that a lot of anxiety can be really helpful to us when we take these steps. Yeah. So in other words, living in the future tense all the time isn't very helpful. (laughs) And so that's why exactly. Yeah. Cause I feel like there's a lot of talk about, you know, find a new mindset, meditate, find ways to live in the present moment. And it's almost like, I think the challenge for people a lot of times is like, they're constantly thinking about the future and they're, they're unable to be in the present moment. And your book is called future tense. So that's, and (laughs) I assume that's because anxiety is very much always a bit around the future. Yeah. And once we understand that we kind of use it as future tense thinking, like we can think about it that way. Okay. This is useful information. And everyone's telling me to meditate all the time. And everyone's telling me to do all this stuff. And those are great things, but we skip, we go right to that step and we skip steps one and two, which are that we have to lean into and experience these difficult feelings that are unpleasant. We have to know it won't damage us to feel anxiety. That's where that mindset shift is also important. And then once we listen, not every time, sometimes it's just too overwhelming. We have to, you know, press the reset button, (laughs) just go to bed just binge some Netflix and try again the next day, right? But but a lot of the time there, we can actually listen to it. And then we leverage it. We try to find actions we can take that help us move into the future to make our dreams come true and to avert disaster. And then we can meditate, let go, take a run because exercise is a great way to return to the present tense. I love to write bad poetry <laughs> when, I, when I want to just think in a completely different way. We know what we can do to make us feel better. We can talk to friends, talk to a therapist. We can do all those things, but not until we listen to our difficult feelings like anxiety and try to translate them into action. Those have to be the first two steps. And we're missing those first steps because we're so busy hating anxiety. Yeah. Well, and to your point, trying to avoid it or like having this feeling of guilt and shame. Like if I'm anxious that I'm thinking a lot about too, like at work, 
it's like, you don't want to be the sensitive one. You don't want to be the anxious one. There's like all these terms and you don't want to be that fill in the blank one person at work who's like that. But the reality is the person who's maybe a little bit anxious at work probably gets a lot done, I would imagine also. So you talked about one of the healthy coping mechanisms with anxiety is to listen to it. And the example you just gave is almost like making like a to-do list or sort of like, okay, this is the one thing that is really standing out. So what action can I take? So I love a to-do list. What are Me some too. other, <laughs> I, they're, they're fantastic in those moments too. Um, what are some other healthy coping mechanisms when you're having anxiety like that? Yes, you can create the action plan. What are some other things? I, uh, there are two things that I also think of as, as women professionals. I think we're particularly prone to two things that can really add to the burden of, of the burden of anxiety. One is that we say yes to too many things. And then it's just overwhelm, overwhelm. And two, we're sometimes burdened by perfectionism. So I have some ways of sort of disrupting both of those. So let's start with saying no. So when we say yes, to because, you know, we're dynamic people. We want to do things. We want to contribute. But saying yes to too many things is obviously going to get in the way of doing things we actually want to do and being able to do things well. So one way to find a better balance between what we say yes to and what we say no to is to literally make a list of the things that we're saying yes to in one column <laughs> and, and things and divide the columns into yeses that are things that are really fueling our goals, things we care about, things that are personally meaningful to us. So create that column. That's column A. And then column B, well, things we're saying yes to that are busy work, that are things that no one else would do, that are just, you know, that are, you know, just, you know, things that are thrust upon us. And look at those lists. And if you have many, many, many more things in column B, right, the unhelpful yeses compared to column A, you're out of balance. And so an exercise we can all do, and not just women, also men, all of us who say yes to too much is we can start to say, okay, what can we let go of from column B? What are those two or three things that we know are not moving us forward, are not fueling us? That, and, and sometimes it's hard for us to figure out what that is. So we can actually draw on our community. We can create a no board of advisors where we have those friends or those colleagues who they know what you really need to do to advance yourself and to really you, you know, do things that are meaningful to you have them, you know, consult with them, have them help you figure out what to say no to. But we need to have more balance in that list. And if we can actually have more of the yeses in column A and fewer in column B, that's a really great thing to, to try to focus on. And we do, out of anxiety, we actually sometimes say yes to all these things. And then, of course, it's a vicious cycle. So then as we say yes to things out of anxiety, it usually causes us even more overwhelming anxiety. So I think that is an important balance to strike. Mm-hmm. I love that. I, and I think also like, I'm just thinking about how someone could start this today, like keep a pad of paper at your desk and literally as things come up, put them in the column. So like in real time and track that for a week, because I also think sometimes people just do this thing where they're like, I'm so overwhelmed. I'm so busy. But if you ask them what's on your list, it's like, they've gotten to this point where it's blurry. It's like, they're so overwhelmed that they can't even name the specific items. And I think there's a lot of power in being able to specifically name this is the thing that's overwhelming. I said yes to that lunch that I really can't do because she always says it's a half an hour, but it always ends up being two hours. And then it makes me anxious that I lost that much time. Like being super specific, I find is very helpful for not only setting the boundaries, but preventing the burnout that comes from not setting boundaries. 
Lauren, that's genius. And I love that too, because not only is it being very concrete, because you're right, when we're so overwhelmed, you don't even have time to get concrete half the time. Yeah. Right? You feel you don't have time. So you're writing it down as it goes, and then you can keep adding to the list. And what you pointed out is that it can be big things and it can be small things. Those little small things, like the, the lunches, the little the little things you volunteer to do, the, I'll, I'll pick up bagels for everyone today, and I do it every day now. Those really add up. So I love what you just said about that. I agree entirely. And I, now, so that's yes, you know, that's saying yes and saying no. The second thing that I think affects a lot of us is perfectionism. Now, perfectionism, it has gotten a bad rap and for a good reason, because perfectionism is when we hold ourselves to a standard of flawlessness so that unless it's, a, you know, 120%, it's a fail. And women on average can be more prone to perfectionism. I think especially women who are you know, high-performing women and, 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 you know, very focused on, on building careers and breaking the glass ceiling, we get into this perfectionistic mode. But the problem with perfectionism is it really does tend to be associated with more de- debilitating anxiety, depression, even suicidality for some people, because you can never get to perfect. But it also is an opportunity cost, because then when you're always going for perfect, you never know when it's good enough. You, you put in more effort that's, an, that's efficient and your products, your outcomes, actually, you tend to do worse. You tend to create and perform worse than if you can let go of some of those perfectionism. So it's really important to, instead of shooting for perfect, to shoot for excellent. And what does that mean? Now, and it, there's a term and it's not a great term. I wish I had a better one. There's actually a, phrase, a term called excellencism, <laughs> which is in contradiction to perfectionism. But with excellencism, you know that you don't have to go for perfect and you can, you can just, you, you can go for excellent, but on the way to excellent, you need to fail. You need to learn from your mistakes. Sometimes good enough is good enough. And you learn that you have to let go of some things to get to really what, what, what your best is. And so if we can start to make the shift from perfectionism to excellence, then not only are we going to be more productive and successful, we'll be happier. So one way, a simple way to do this is to do a thought experiment and try to do it like maybe once a week or once every couple of weeks where you pick something that you know you get stuck on perfectionism and that it's getting in your way. I'll take kind of a personal thing as an example. I used to get very, very, and I am a perfectionist in recovery, by the way, I should say, and it's a constant (laughs) process of recovery, but I get very perfectionistic about entertaining at home or holding a work meeting where I'm the host or and, and what, and so what I did when I was working on this for myself is I made a list of all the things that have to be perfect when I host, you know, everything from perfect menu to the location being perfectly clean to being, you know, perfect decor, you know, all the bells and whistles. And once I made that list and had it in front of me, I said, okay, I need to let go of two or three of these things. I just need to know that good enough is good enough. And I'm not going to sweat the small stuff. So for me, I let go, and this could be like a dinner party example. I let go of having to cook everything myself before guests arrive, <laughs> right? Have it right there. And I let go of having a perfectly clean house. <laughs> so there's <laughs> dust allowed. There was, you know. And and so then I so I did that and I had a dinner party. And then I observed what happened. Well, first of all, I started cooking with my guests instead of for them. And I can, you know, I had a couple things prepared, but when I actually was cooking with my friends when they came over, it was so much more fun. It was, it was, it, everyone enjoyed it more because they weren't on pins and needles that everything was served to them. Like they were, you know, absolute strangers. And, 
And it was just, it was a much more enjoyable, successful dinner party on that level. And I let go of having to have a perfectly clean house so that I wasn't slaving before or having to hire someone to clean or it was just, and it was just such a more enjoyable, easy. And now I want to have more dinner parties because I'm not holding myself to this perfectionistic standard. So we can apply that exercise in so many domains of our life and it will reduce our anxiety and help us be more productive and effective in what we choose to do. Yeah, I like that. I also think another way you can learn where your perfectionism really pops up is like, what are the things you feel the most exhausted about afterwards? So for you, you were saying dinner parties would exhaust you afterwards because you could tell you had this perfectionism. Sometimes I feel that way about giving like a keynote, like people ask me to speak. I'm like, keynotes really exhaust me because I feel this need. It has to be engaging. It has to be perfect. It has to be, you know, unique content they've never heard before. And, you know, the audience has to engage with me. Otherwise I didn't do a good enough job. Whereas like, if I'm on a panel or if I'm doing like a interactive conversation, those don't exhaust me. I feel much more comfortable with those. So it's interesting because now that you say that I'm like keynotes definitely are my perfectionism box that I need to figure out how to just get to excellent with. But I think there's always that pressure too, because maybe someone's paying you to do it or something like that. So, but that's such a great example because that requires you then to say, what are the crucial, what, what are the things that make a keynote really important and impactful? And even in thinking through that, uh, your perfectionism in that situation, it's going to give you insights into what you're most effective at because you're, well, needs to be interactive. And you know, I'm really good at that. Mm-hmm. And when I do that really well, those other things fall aside. So it's also just this incredible, so you're engaging with the discomfort of that perfectionism, you're listening to it in a way, much like we need to listen to anxiety. We need to listen to grief. We need to listen to all these difficult experiences. And, and it's just, there's so much information embedded in that. And, and I would bet that if you go through that exercise with keynotes, you'll even come up with some new strategies that will make them even more effective and powerful. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of that kind of stuff at work for people. Presentations obviously are like a a really easy one, but like running a meeting, having a conversation or a a one-on-one with your boss, like what are the things you feel the most exhausted by afterwards? Can you take a, a deeper look at those? So I want to shift gears a little bit just because, you know, obviously it's a new year. I think a lot of people can sometimes feel anxious when there's like a big milestone because there is a lot of pressure, I think, that we put on ourselves to feel like we've got the next year all planned out. Or there's like pressure that you put on yourself about like, maybe I didn't do enough in 2022 or I wish I had done more. You know, there's kind of like this double pressure on both sides of a new year because you have the past year and the future year. So what would be your advice to someone who's maybe feeling particularly anxious right now or feeling very uncertain overall about what they want in their life or their career specifically this year? What what can they do to kind of ease that? I know you said, you know, the first thing is you need to listen, leverage, but maybe we can give some tangible pieces of advice with that. You know, this really, this really is such a crucial question. And, you know, yes, it's, it's heightened at the new year or at these transitional points in our lives, but it's really a question we can ask ourselves on a daily basis, because when, when we're looking into the future, we're holding in our minds so many possibilities, but we very rarely take time to, to really think about not just 
what's important in terms of some external, you know, kind of some external indicator, like I need to do X, Y, Z to make money. And that's very important, (laughs) right? Yes. And we should, and we should have a bin of those, you know, that we're very clear on. But, but usually when that, those basics are taken care of, there's so much left over. And the, and when we take, you know, really the first step is just to take time. And as, as you, as we were talking about before is to put these vague feelings to paper, to put, you know, to give names and words to these vague feelings that are, that are often so uncomfortable that we really um, shy away from them, that we, that we spend a lot of time thinking that, well, if I'm feeling uncomfortable, it means that there's something wrong with me. So let me just move on. Let me just, you know, uh, keep it's like cheery. a distraction, you know, like, oh, yeah. instead of thinking about why I'm feeling discomfort about this thing, I'll just find a new job. And if I can find a new job, it's going to fix all these other parts. Right. And this is the classic thing. And this is why, I mean, honestly, this question is why I wrote this book, because we do this with all of our uncomfortable feelings. But anxiety is a poster child for these kinds of questions, because anxiety is our feeling about the future. Yeah. So, so I, I really think that when we feel that anxiety about the future, we just have to step back and, and we just have to take time to be with that feeling. And it is the listen again, but, but there are ways that we can do it where we have to decide, okay, every year as I'm approaching this time at the end of one year and the beginning of another, I need to do an exercise where I list in, you know, and you can do this in many different ways. It really depends on on sort of where you are in your life. But one way to do it is to say, I have my wish fors and my, you know, the things I wish and hope for mm-hmm. and the things that have to get done. And just start to divide all these, these kind of these future things that you might be thinking about in those, in those categories. So that's one way to start to make them concrete. Another thing that we can do when we're facing the future is what will give me not just, you know, kind of an external sense of accomplishment, but what are the things that I have noticed this past year that that really fuel me, that were my happiest moments that brought me the most joy versus those things, as you had talked about before, that are most exhausting. And, you know, for me, I can speak to this a little bit from a personal experience. I've recently been making a shift from doing, you know, a lot of research, a lot of lab-based, you know, get the research grants, write up the scientific papers to deciding that, you know, I'm going to write a book. I want to share these ideas in a, in a more public way. I want to start communicating in a different way. And making that shift, it was very anxiety provoking and unclear to me whether I was making a shift, how I was making a shift. And I literally at one point about a year ago, I had to sit down and I had to envision for myself, what do I see if I'm projecting a future a life that will bring me joy and satisfaction. What do I see the next six months bringing? What do I envision the next year bringing? What do I envision the next five years bringing? And once I started having my North Star be, you know, personal satisfaction, (laughs) you know, joy, energy, excitement, what I was projecting in my future started to change. Now, at the same time, I had responsibility. I, I, you know, I wasn't going to just, you know, leave my job and start doing something else. So once I started realizing what I might be shooting for in this sort of one year, two year, five year plan, then I can go back and put all these other things I have to do in their place. So it's a process of prioritization of, you know, listening, prioritization and anchoring this future uncertainty into what, you know, what are my, what are my positive possibilities and what are the things that really can't happen? And, and just to, 
to be with those in an open and curious way and not judging them as I'm bad. If I feel anxious, I'm broken. If I feel anxious. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with, I, th- I think the key to really, I don't want to say curing anxiety, but I do think action really, really helps with anxiety. So to your point, making a list, writing out my one, five, 10 year plan. For me, I think there's something about very therapeutic about pen to paper, but some people like to type it up. Some people like to go on walks and I don't know, record voice memos to themselves or, you know, whatever it is. But I, I think that's a really good point. And one of the things I've been thinking a lot about, especially in the new year is a lot of us make these outcome-based goals, but can you make process-based goals instead? So maybe the outcome is that you want a new job or the outcome is that you want to launch, you know, a more public visible brand about anxiety, but the process is, is really how you get to the, that outcome. Right. And so what is the process-based goal maybe? And it, you, you point out, it's like, you can make your three month goals, your six month goals and your 12 month goals or whatever it is like that. So I love that. And I do the exact same thing. I mean, we are fellow list makers and writers. Yeah. And yeah. Clearly work up from the same cloth. Is, anxiety <laughs> is, is unhelpful when it's in Kuwait, when it doesn't yeah. have shape, it doesn't have, but the minute you start to kind of reduce it to these actionable steps and knowing we still have to believe that we're okay when we're anxious. That is the primary belief that we need to instill because it lets us come back to a baseline, right? Of, mm, yeah. okay, it's okay. It's actually, you know, anxiety is a feature of being human. It's not a bug. We're all born anxious. We just have to learn to be anxious in the right way. Once you get to that, then you see, oh, wait, I'm only anxious when I care. I am anxious about this because yeah. I'm passionate about it. Because I'm scared because all, the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I had a family member who was in this brand new job, tech startup, and 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 the family member was really thought that this was the right move for me. This is This is what I should want. And this is the exciting new thing. And this is going to open opportunities. But she was miserable every single day. And she, instead of just sort of like sweeping that under the rug or saying, oh, it's something wrong with me, she really tuned into and learned something about herself, about the kinds of work environments that fueled her, that gave her personal satisfaction and energized her. And it was not a bootstrap startup. It wasn't where people were constantly changing roles. It wasn't, you know, she started to understand because she leaned into that discomfort, she learned a lot about really what her optimal work environment was. And she ended up leaving that job, but not in this way of like, oh, I'm going to drop it. I'm going to find something else, but in a really, a really focused and wise way. And she found this next job that was literally the perfect next step for her. But again, it was because she was able to give words to that really uncomfortable anxiety and to start to know that it was telling her something. important. Yeah. Uh, well, Dr. Tracy, this is fantastic. I feel like we've given everybody so many good to do items for literally their list making. (laughs) I'm definitely going to do the boundary one for sure, because I love the idea of the, what are you saying yes to and being specific about it. And I think it makes it so much easier to say no when it's literally on your list. (laughs) So (laughs) your book is called future tense. Tell everyone else where they can find you follow your work. Obviously they can probably buy your book anywhere books are sold, but tell us all the good things. You can definitely find me at my website, drtracy.com. And on, I, I think Instagram might be the best because I try to post tips and, and, and things like that. And that's at Dr. Tracy PhD. Awesome. We'll link to all of that in the show notes as well as your book, Future Tense. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Lauren. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Career Contessa podcast. Don't forget to rate and review the show. I know we ask all the time, but it really does help us. So we're very, very grateful when you guys do that. If you're ready to take action by creating better to-do lists, check out our free download with uncommon to-do list templates that we use daily. Those are in the show notes. And also don't forget that the show notes will also have all the links to learn more about Dr. Tracy, including her book, Future Tense, an article that she wrote for the Washington Post that further explains excellentism and so much more. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.